So back to the uh, Vineyard Conference. Uh, for me personally, I have to say it was good and bad. It was good because it reminded me of how much I love about the vineyard and being part of the vineyard and frankly just being vineyard. And it was good because we were able to introduce Julian and Libby to lots of people. But it was bad because the speakers there were way too good. <laughs> Note to self, never do the talk in church on the Sunday after the national conference. By the time I realized that was the timing, it was too late to change the preaching schedule and give someone else the opportunity. <laughs> so we are where we are, I'm afraid, and you have me. I can only apologize. Now, I remember some years ago, someone saying that you don't so much become vineyard as realize that it's what you are when so much of its theology and practice starts to make so much sense when you first encounter it, which is really what happened for me and Lynn some years ago. So that's what I thought I would talk about this morning, what I love about the vineyard. Now that might sound a bit self-indulgent, and for those of us who've been part of the vineyard for years, you may say, yeah, yeah, we know all that. Tell us something we don't know. But I hope maybe it will be a helpful reminder, and if you've started coming here recently, maybe it will help explain a few things. Now, it's only right to start by saying that the vineyard isn't perfect. Even at Sutton Vineyard, we don't always get everything right. Now, I know that will come as a shock and a disappointment, but it will be somewhere between naive and sycophantic to suggest otherwise. There are things that the vineyard could do better and things that it's still working through. But none of that is fundamental to what I want to focus on this morning, which is what we might call some vineyard values, some characteristics and ways of doing things that all vineyard churches basically reflect as part of our DNA or genetic code. Some of the things that are important to us that make us a vineyard church rather than just another charismatic or Pentecostal church that may have some similarities. Now, it's also important to say that we are not saying we're better than anyone else or that we've got it right and others have got it wrong. John Wimber, who was the main founder of the vineyard, used to say that we are just one vegetable in God's stew. So this morning, what we're talking about is just some of what that vineyard vegetable looks like and tastes like. And to be honest, some of that is cultural more than theological. For example, we don't really do shouty. Do you know what I mean by shouty? We don't do shouty when we pray for people and we don't do shouty when we preach. But I can't give you a Bible verse for that. It's not right or wrong, it's cultural. It's just not very vineyard. So here we go, six things that I love about the vineyard. I know that the classic sermon is three, but we do like to try to give value for money. <laughs> so the first thing that I love is the way the vineyard is aiming to bring together what it means to be people of the word and people of the spirit. Now this picture is very simplistic, but what it's trying to say is that Vineyard is wanting to combine the strengths of the evangelical tradition with its emphasis on the Bible 
and the strength of the Pentecostal tradition with its emphasis on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a so-called radical middle without the extremes that you sometimes get at either end. Is it always easy to figure out what that looks like? No, but it's what we're aiming for. So inviting the presence of God and encountering the presence of God is really important to us. But so too is being anchored and rooted in scripture. Now there is a problem in saying that because we all know that the Bible has been used to justify all sorts of bad things over the centuries and even at times today. So it's never good enough for us to just say the Bible says plus a couple of verses that we've pulled out of their context. It means uh, being aware of the rules of good scholarship and then following them in how we teach the Bible and teach from the Bible. And one simple and easy rule that we can all follow, scholars or not, and we can all remember, is making sure that we are Jesus-centric. So when in doubt, look at anything in scripture and any question that comes up for life today through the lens of Jesus. What he was like and the kind of things he said and the kind of things he did and the parables he told, the conversations he had and the way that he treated people. Because what Jesus is like is what God is like. Father, Son and Spirit are one. They share the exact same nature and character. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the exact living image of the unseen God. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14.9. So no understanding of God, no apparent characteristic of God that we think we find in Scripture, and no prophetic word for today, for that matter, will ever contradict the person of Jesus or be inconsistent with Jesus. So that's one quick and easy test to be confident that we are reading the Bible well. The next thing that I love is our understanding of the kingdom. Now it's not ours in the sense of it being uh, unique to the vineyard, but it's actually the way that most biblical scholars now understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom. What John Wimber and the early vineyard did was to bring that understanding out of the academic world and make it make sense for ordinary Christians. In the Gospels, we can't miss reference to the kingdom. The Greek word is there over 120 times. It's actually also what Jesus told most of his parables about, about one in three of them. And one reason why our theology of the kingdom is so important is because it provides the basis for us to understand God's involvements in this world. So let's start with what the kingdom isn't. It's not going to heaven when you die. In Mark 12, Jesus said to one of the religious leaders, you're not far from the kingdom. But he didn't mean you're going to die soon. And it's not another word for church. So the church should be an expression of the kingdom, which reflects the characteristics of the kingdom, but it's not a synonym for kingdom. Now, what often confuses people about this is that some Bible verses say that the kingdom has come now, already, 
But some say that it's still to come, that it hasn't come yet. In Matthew 6, Jesus said we should seek the kingdom. So it's clearly something that we can be part of and experience in the present. But in the same chapter, he also told us to pray for the kingdom to come, which can be a bit confusing until we realize that both are true. So it's both and, not either or. The kingdom is here already because it broke into this world in Jesus' life and ministry. And the Holy Spirit has stayed with us to continue his work, to continue the kingdom breaking in. But it's also still to come in all its fullness and completeness when Jesus returns. So paradoxically, the kingdom is here already in part, but it's also not here yet. So what exactly is the kingdom? Well, it's not a place like the United Kingdom. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, what it means is this. The kingdom is happening anywhere that we see the rule and reign of God happening. Whenever we see the enemies of human life and human flourishing being pushed back and defeated by the power of God in someone's life. Whenever there is healing and deliverance and transformation and answers to prayer. Whenever we see God putting right things that are wrong, the kingdom is happening and the kingdom is present. That's both the things that God himself does directly and the things that we do for him when we do compassion and mercy and justice. One theologian called the kingdom the presence of the future because all of those things are a foretaste of the way that all things will be in God's future, breaking into the way that things are right now in the present. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're actually saying is, Lord, would you bring more of your future into our present in this person's life and situation? And that's what we're doing in our ministry times. And that future is kind of summed up in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That is our future. So going back to that question that confuses people, it's not whether the kingdom has come or is still to come. The answer is that it is both. The kingdom is now and not yet. It started, but it isn't completed. The kingdom as we experience it now is the first fruits of the kingdom as it will be in all its fullness when Jesus returns. And you know, the, the thing about first fruits is that they're the same as the harvest in quality, but not yet in quantity. The full harvest is still to come. So we see some of the fruits of God's will being done, but we don't always see that in every situation or to the same extent, because we are living in between the times, which helps to explain why some are healed, but not everyone is healed. 
Other ways that the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit's moving in these in-between times is as a deposit or down payment and a guarantee. So a guarantee is a contractual commitment which is a sure and certain promise we can rely on that something will happen in the future. And a deposit is like when you buy a house which happens in two stages, exchange and completion. So the 10% deposit on exchange of contracts guarantees that it's certain to happen. Nothing can now stop it. Uh, and that's when you know that one day soon that house is definitely going to be yours. So when you exchange contracts, you have the house, but you also don't have it. You own it already, but not yet. Between exchange and completion, you're living between the times, just like with the coming of the kingdom. So our experience of the kingdom now is as first fruits, but not the complete harvest. As a deposit, but not the whole deal. As a guarantee to give us certainty that something much bigger will happen in the future. So we don't believe in the idea of claiming healings or even claiming all Bible promises. Because not everything that God promises he will do is for now. Healing is not guaranteed in this life. All of God's promises will come true, but not all of them will come true now. So not all of them can be claimed now. Just like we can't claim our house until the day of completion. So God invites us to ask the Holy Spirit to bring more of the presence of the kingdom now and to ask expectantly, but without assuming that he will always fix everything that needs fixing right now and without blaming ourselves or even worse, blaming the person being prayed for, for not having enough faith or having unconfessed sin in their life that's acting as a blockage or other nonsense like that. Uh, that's the technical term, by the way, nonsense. <laughs> you see, that, that damages people and it condemns people when healing doesn't come. The only faith that's needed is our faithfulness in praying for people, always believing in divine possibilities when we pray. So we never tell people that they have their healing and they just need to believe it when quite obviously they don't. That wouldn't be faith, that would just be false. You see, faith is a doing word. It means being faithful in inviting God to move. Inviting him to bring more of his kingdom future into the present in someone's life and situation. So our job is to pray faithfully and expectantly, but to leave it to him, to trust him for the outcomes. And that's because in the present, we will experience not yet moments as well as now moments. The next thing that I love about the vineyard is how we welcome people to come as you are. Now, originally that meant come dressed as you are that you don't need to dress up for church. But increasingly, it came to mean, come as the person you are, 
with your mess and your baggage and hang out with us and belong to us because we've all got mess and baggage. Come as you are means that we don't see it as our job to correct people and certainly not to judge people. Now that doesn't mean that we are soft on sin but we want to let the Holy Spirit be the one who speaks to people and convicts them if and where there are things that should change. Romans 2.4 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the big stick of other Christians. We are called to be shepherds, not sheepdogs. The only exception to that is if someone is a danger to people or behaving in ways that are harmful, if it's a safeguarding issue. Then we will come down on them like the proverbial ton of bricks. Because everyone can come as they are, but that doesn't mean that everyone can just do as they like. Now, sometimes you may hear people add a postscript to that phrase. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Have you heard that? Anyone heard that? So let me quickly explain what that means. It does not mean that the clock is ticking on someone's welcome that it's going to run out unless they change in certain ways within a certain time frame. So far as we're concerned in the vineyard, people can come as they are and stay as they are as long as they want to. Because any agenda for change in someone's life is down to the Holy Spirit. He transforms people according to his agenda, not other Christians' agenda. And that kind of leads on to the next thing that I love about the vineyard, which is everyone gets to play. Now, when I first heard that, I really didn't like it. I thought, this isn't a game. We're not playing. This is the Lord's work. But not for the first time, I was missing the point and being a bit pompous. The point here is that God's kingdom isn't about what people like me do, it's about what all of us do. Ephesians 4 says that our job is to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry, not for us to do it all while everyone else just watches. Just because someone is on the stage or preaching the sermon doesn't mean that they have any special powers or special anointing or get better results. Anyone can pray for people and see God move just as well or better than we can. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So on a Sunday morning, I recommend you ask the weakest person you can find to pray for you. Now, I don't recommend you tell them that's the reason that you've asked them to pray for you. But really, it's what everyone gets to play is all about. And the technical term for that is the priesthood of all believers, or every member ministry. But everyone gets to play sounds so much more fun, doesn't it? You see, the reason for that is because in the vineyard, we don't put people on pedestals. We don't believe in anointed men and women of God, more spiritual ones, closer to God ones with extra powers. None of us has something called the anointing on us. If you think you can see it on someone, it's probably dandruff. 
none of us have anointing, but we all have access to the Holy Spirit. And we all have the same access. Every time the Holy Spirit moves and does anything, it's all about him and it's never in the least about us. Not techniques, not formulas, not even formulae, and not equations. A plus B plus C plus D equals results. The only ability that God needs from us is availability. Our availability and willingness to pray for people. And he does everything else. And that is reinforced by our understanding of how the gifts of the Spirit work. So 1 Corinthians 12.7 tells us that spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for the common good. And the Greek word there means everyone sharing in the prophets. Everyone being blessed. So when we look at things like prophecy and words of knowledge, they are not for the good of the person giving them, by them being proven right and enhancing their prophetic credentials. Prophecies and words of knowledge are not a predictions competition. They are, 1 Corinthians 14.3 tells us, for strengthening, encouraging, and comforting people. So our first point of reference for testing a prophecy or a word of knowledge that the Bible tells us to do is whether they do good in the life of the person they've been given to, whether they have been blessed and encouraged by it. It's not the Holy Spirit who is given to us to use. It's the manifestations of the Spirit that are given through us to bless. We are just the conduit for him. So we are like a a drain pipe, but we are not the rain and we don't make it rain. Our job is just to be in the right place at the right time for that rain to flow through us. Now in some Christian traditions, the way that they think about spiritual gifts is about people having the gifts as a personal characteristic like we might say that an artist or a musician is gifted. But the healthiest way for us to think about them is as gifts to the person receiving them. So, for example, when a birthday present arrives in the post, it isn't a gift from the postman. The gift is from the sender. At no point has it ever been the postman's. Unless, of course, he happens to be your dad. But if we think about spiritual gifts that way, we avoid getting into a state about which ones we've got and which ones we haven't got. Because we don't have them at all in that sense. And that, in turn, fits with the vineyard understanding of the gifts of the Spirit as situational, not constitutional. What on earth does that mean? I'm so glad that you asked. So situational simply means that God can work through any of us in any gift of the Spirit that is required in that situation, the situation that we find ourselves in. So praying for healing, prophesying, giving a word of knowledge, or whatever the situation requires. Whereas constitutional says you can only move in a gift if you have that kind of role in the church. If you have the 
office, the giftedness, and in some traditions they also give you the title. So thinking about the gifts of the Spirit as situational, more than constitutional, fits way better with vineyard values that for us are biblical values, like everyone gets to play. And that the gifts of the Spirit are not in the least about us ever. So that means that we don't put special people on pedestals. We don't flock to their meetings to get them to pray for us or prophesy over us. The next thing that I love about the vineyard is another catchphrase. Naturally supernatural and supernaturally natural. What that means, in other words, is that we should be both supernatural people and natural people at the same time and all of the time. So there should be an ordinariness, an everydayness, a kind of matter-of-factness about our spirituality. Now, the idea that there is a natural world and a spiritual world, and that sometimes as Christians we're in the natural and sometimes we're in the spirit, is called dualism. And you'll sometimes hear Christians using that language. But it comes from Plato and Greek philosophy rather than the Bible. We should be both natural and supernatural all at the same time. Because God made us to be both at the same time. So the spiritual me and the physical me are indivisible. We love emotion in our gatherings because you can't love someone without emotion, but we are wary of emotionalism. And that's probably because of our evangelical roots, or in the Wimbers case, their roots as Quakers. So if we sense emotionalism happening in a service, we'll quietly calm things down a little bit. That is why sometimes we will introduce a bit of humor or in my case, try to introduce a bit of humor. But it's just to make sure that whatever is happening is because it really is the Holy Spirit doing it and not us. So can I encourage you to be supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural. Don't go into weird mode. You may, sounds like you've come across weird mode thinking that that is being spiritual. It is not being spiritual, it is just being weird. <laughs> and then last but not least, the vineyard value of worship. And notice if you would that it's not just worship, it's worship as a sacrament. So let me explain what that means. So last week we shared communion together and we explained how communion is a sacrament. The week before, we did baptisms, and we explained how baptism is a sacrament. And we said that a sacrament has three special features. It's something Jesus told us to do. It's something we physically participate in. And it's something with special spiritual significance, because God himself will be present with us and meet with us in a special way when we do it. So these are not just events happening in the physical realm. In baptism and communion, we believe there's something special going on in the spiritual realm as well. 
And so too is how we see worship in the vineyard. And actually it's how we think of ministry time as well. So the technical term is that God's blessing is mediated to us through a sacrament. In other words, taking part in it is a delivery vehicle to bring a blessing into our lives through us doing it and God's presence in it. Baptism is a sacrament that we participate in just once. But communion and worship and ministry times are ones that we're encouraged to participate in all of the time. So worship being a sacrament as something... uh, Yes, worship being a sacrament shapes how we think about it and the way that we do it. So we don't think about worship as something to warm us up for the sermon, as if that is the pinnacle of the service. We expect to engage with God, to encounter the presence of God and for God to speak to us, and even to bring healing to us, just as much or more than in the sermon or the ministry time. And that in turn shapes how we do worship and the important features of our worship and the amount of time that we give to it. It's why we talk about worship rather than praise and worship. Not because we never do praise, at times we do. But because our overwhelming priority in the time that we have available is to facilitate a personal encounter with God through the Holy Spirit. It's why, generally speaking, most of the time, our song words are sung to God rather than about God, because we are way more focused on being intimate than on being declaratory. It's why, generally speaking, our worship leaders don't talk between songs or talk over songs. Because again, in the time that we have available, we want to listen for what God wants to say to us rather than what the worship leader thinks God wants to say to us. So we try to avoid distractions and interruptions. It's why, generally speaking, we have simple words and simple melodies. And why we often repeat those words so that they sink in and they take root in our hearts. So we can close our eyes and journey deeper into God's presence without having to look at the screen all the time. So in the vineyard, quick reminder, we worship with our eyes closed and we pray for people with our eyes open. And it's why generally speaking, our worship leaders will segue from song to song seamlessly rather than stop, start, stop, start. So when vineyard worship leaders do their job well, Just like the media guys and the sound guys, their goal is that we don't even notice them. So here's a a final quick look at those six things. And, And there could have been more that I personally love about the vineyard. And it's no coincidence that the last one on the list is worship as a sacrament.